Tonight we take a step to the Gospel of John because we're going to look at the first miracle, uh, which most of you know is the miracle in which Jesus turned water into wine. In fact, of the miracles of Jesus, for some reason, this is the one that secular society tends to know the most about. So, tonight we're going to talk about this, the first of Jesus' miracles, or signs as John will call it. In John chapter 2, the first 11 verses will be our focus. And we will start off by reading this text, so I invite you to join me in reading John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the, uh, to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, what I like to do with any of these stories is start with the details and, and give us some context. Now, I'm going to go ahead and let you know if you're one of the, those uh, note-takers out there. I did not prepare my usual PowerPoint with lots of details. This is going to be very limited and just be headings of what we're talking about. Uh, it was a time factor, so please forgive me this time. Uh, but let's start by looking at the circumstances surrounding uh, this particular miracle. And the first thing I want you to consider is, is when it occurred. Because when you look at John chapter 2 in the first verse, the, the very first thing we see is on the third day. So we're, giving, we're given sort of a timeline as to when this is happening in conjunction with the events that preceded it. So to really get a grasp of what we have here, you kind of have to back up into chapter 1. Because John has re been recording a sequence of events since he introduced John the Baptist back in verse 19. And, and from his introduction of John the Baptist in, in verse 19 of chapter 1, he's been telling us what happens every day thereafter. So I want you to skim through this with me for just a moment. So if you go back to John chapter 1 and verse 19, that's really where the sequence is going to begin, but you're, you're not going to realize it until you get a few verses later. But, but in verses 19 through 28 of John chapter 1, we, we have a Jewish delegation coming to interrogate John the Baptist, and, and John, uh, John preaches to them, essentially. That's where our sequence of events starts. Day one of the sequence of events is John being interrogated by this Jewish delegation. Day two picks up in verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29, you'll see it begins with the phrase, the next day. This is day 2 of this sequence. And on day 2 of the sequence, John identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and then he taught about his own ministry and its relationship to the Messiah. And so day 2 happens, beginning in verse 29. You'll see, see the third day of this sequence come into play in verse 35. Because at the start of verse 35, we have that phrase, the next day again. And there, John identified Jesus to two of his disciples, and those two disciples of John began following Jesus. They transferred discipleship, if you will, and they became disciples of Jesus. That's what happens on the third day, the third consecutive day. Now, the fourth day you have to do a little bit of 
um, impl- you have to imply something here. You see, if you look at that third day that starts in verse 35, you'll see that You'll see that John's two disciples that left him and started following Jesus, they went with Jesus to where Jesus was staying. And we're told that it was about what time? The tenth hour, which would translate into American time as roughly four o'clock in the afternoon. So ultimately, when they get back to Jesus's dwelling, it's at the end of the day. And the text tells us that they spend the rest of that day with Jesus. But then the text transitions into another event that feels like it must be another day. Because immediately after this, it talks about how Andrew went and got Simon and introduced Jesus to Simon. And now we have Peter in the equation. And so that doesn't seem to fit into the same day that Andrew, who is, a, who is the only disciple identified of John's that became a disciple of Jesus, if Andrew spent the whole day with Jesus on that third day, then his going to get Simon and introducing Simon to Jesus must have happened on the fourth day. That's not specifically mentioned. You'll understand in a moment why that matters. Because if you skip down to verse 43, we have our next reference to the next day. And while, while you, in your reading it would seem like, oh, this must be the fourth day, it seems most likely that it's actually the fifth day, and there just wasn't a next day inserted when Andrew went to get Simon Peter. So, it appears that we are probably on the fifth day, consecutive day here, in verse 43. This is after Jesus is introduced to Peter, and now we've got an extended section where Jesus is inviting Philip and eventually Nathaniel to follow him. So we have specifically mentioned four different days, but it appears there is a fifth day involved. And now we get to chapter Two. And in verse 1, it tells us that on the third day. On the third day from what? Obviously, it's on the third day from this interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel, because that was the last event mentioned in, ver- in chapter 1. And so it's on the third day from Jesus' interaction with Nathaniel that they are going to this uh, event in chapter 2. But when we hear that phrase on the third day, how many days do we count? Three. That's an American way of counting here. But it's not consistent with the way that the Hebrews would have counted. On the third day, you count the day of the event The day that Jesus is interacting with Nathaniel is day one. And then you count two more days. So the American idiom for on the third day would be in two days. So if that happened, the interaction between Jesus and Nathaniel was on day five of consecutive days, then on what day was this wedding they're about to attend? If it's two days away. Seventh. Here's the the point. It seems that John has just detailed a consecutive week, seven consecutive days of events at the start of Jesus' ministerial career. You know, that number seven has some significance to it. It has some importance to it especially when you consider the fact that John, as a gospel writer, loves theology. He's not so concerned with chronology. He's not worried about getting every event in the life of Jesus recorded. He totally skips over the birth of Jesus. 
He alludes to the baptism of Jesus in passing. He doesn't mention the temptation. There's so much that John leaves out because John has a very specific goal with his gospel. And if you jump ahead to chapter 20, you find out that his goal is to cause people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's going to mention very specific events that factor into the theology he's trying to present. Now, back in John chapter 1, in fact, I need to open up to that for this point. In John chapter 1, as, as uh, Jesus, excuse me, as John is introducing his gospel, he's going to make reference to a specific event in history. John chapter 1, look at verse, oh, I'm almost there. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What is he referencing? What event that you can read about in the Old Testament is he appealing to? Creation. How many days did creation take? You are correct. How many days are outlined in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? Seven. I tried to throw a trick question in there, and y'all beat me to it. I'm upset now. So when we talk about the creation week, it's seven days, although creation only happened on six of those days. There was a seventh day of resting. Now, granted, when we get to this uh, chronology that's happening in chapter 1 and 2, we have seven days. Now, it's not comparable to creation week because it's not Jesus resting on the seventh day. Jesus is actually performing a miracle on the seventh day. Uh, but we, we have this uh, John, this author, who's got this appeal to creation in chapter 1, and then he's, he follows that up with talking about seven consecutive days in the life of Jesus. Nowhere else, nowhere else does John provide that kind of consecutive information on what's happening day to day in the life of Jesus. This is the only time that John goes into that kind of level of detail in regards to the day to day events of Jesus. Now you can get to his, the last week of Jesus' life, but John's not saying things like on this day, on the next day, on the next day. He's not using that terminology again. It, it, John is kind of under the, uh, or behind the scenes in a, in a way, promoting the theology he started in, in verse 1 through 3, tying Jesus to creation. He's making this connection that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. He's the Word who was in the beginning. And his, create, his activity over the, these seven days is reminiscent of God's activity over the seven days of creation week. It's not identical to it, but it seems to continue this theological goal that John has of connecting Jesus with the Father. And it's very interesting because we'll get over into chapter 3 of John. And in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he's going to start talking about what it takes to become a new creation, to use the terminology that Paul will eventually use. It's really the idea of being born again, and Paul connects that to being a new creation later in his writing. So there is this uniqueness to John's gospel in which he's making this connection with this consecutive day order to his idea that Jesus is the one that that pre-existed time. Jesus is, is the one who was involved in the creation of all things. So if you, so I just want to point that out that we have this consecutive seven days in a row and that seems to be um, unique to John in his writing. So we are two days removed from chapter one essentially Two days removed from John, excuse me, from Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel to follow him. By the end of chapter one, Jesus has recruited at least four people to follow him. Andrew, Simon, Nathaniel, and Philip. 
There is the potential of a fifth individual if the two disciples that followed John the Baptist and transferred their discipleship to Jesus, if the, the second one, because one of them is Andrew, we know that one of them is Andrew, we never get the name of the other one. Many believe the other one is John, because John seems to be this individual throughout his gospel that goes unnamed or is referred to as the beloved disciple or some other generic term like that. And he might be the second one here that was following John the Baptist. Might even be the reason he has this information that others wouldn't have because he was a first-hand eyewitness. So it could be that there's a fifth guy here that we, already, that we don't have a name for. But Jesus has at least four disciples by the start of chapter 2. Now, where are they going? Where did the event occur here? In Cana of Galilee, or at Cana in Galilee, as verse 1 of John chapter 2 says. You know, Cana is only mentioned three times. Well, four, technically. Twice in this chapter in reference to this event. Once in chapter 4, Jesus made a, another trip to Cana in chapter 4. He didn't really do anything there, but while he was in Cana, uh, in John chapter 4, an official from Capernaum showed up and begged Jesus to come back to Capernaum with him because his son was dying. And Jesus ended up, while in Cana, performing a long-distance miracle, healing somebody that was in Capernaum. And we'll probably get around to studying that miracle uh, at some point, but that's the, the, the second time that Cana gets mentioned outside of, of this particular wedding event. And then you can go to John chapter 21 and verse 2. We find out that Nathaniel, the same guy that ended chapter 1 becoming a disciple of Jesus, that Nathaniel was actually from Cana. He's referred to as, as Nathaniel of Cana in John chapter 21 and verse 2. And so it very well may be that John is tracking Jesus' movements from uh, from. The last time he was around John the Baptist until he arrived at Cana and, and showing his recruitment of disciples along the way because Nathaniel was from Cana. He may, he may have uh, acquired Nathaniel as a follower on his way to this wedding. And here's the thing about Cana. I don't have a, a map to show you tonight, but just know this. The town of Cana, its archaeological site, the, the, the location that it's believed to have sat at in Galilee, is only nine miles north of Nazareth. Now, why is Nazareth important? Correct. It's where Jesus was born. It's his hometown. So Jesus is just starting his ministry. Cain is not that far away. Nazareth is where Jesus... Well, it's not where his... I said birth, didn't I? That was incorrect. It's his hometown, place of his childhood, is what I meant to say. Birth was Bethlehem. My apologies. I saw Mike get a little uh, squiggly up here, so I knew I said something wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So uh, think about that. Jesus is growing up in Nazareth. Canaan is not that far away. That's going to factor in in just a moment, and I'll explain why when we get there. So we've got the location. We've got the time. Um, uh, or we, we've got the time. Yeah. Now let's talk about the occasion. There was a wedding at Cana. That is the most fascinating part of this whole story to me. There's a wedding that Jesus is going to. Does that seem odd to you that Jesus is attending a wedding? It seems odd to me because it's just so normal. And to some degree, I don't know if you're like me, but, but I, I'm, I'm not always accustomed to Jesus doing normal things. Most of the time we read about Jesus traveling to Jerusalem for religious events or traveling to various towns for the purpose of teaching. But on this occasion, he attends a wedding, which at that time was a celebration that could last as long as a week. And here's the thing, Jesus apparently was a full participant in this celebration. And I think that's worth mentioning because Jesus chose to attend this wedding. The Son of Man, as one author said, 
took time to enjoy a feast, visit with friends, honor a bride and groom, and celebrate at the wedding in Cana. That's so normal, and yet so beautiful, because it's Jesus. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to go to a wedding with Jesus? I mean, because weddings are, are for an attender, not for a participant in the wedding, but for one who's a guest. It's just a relaxed, enjoyable time. You're there to enjoy some food. You're there to uh, laugh and celebrate. It, it's, it's, it, there's, an, there's an aura around a wedding of joy. And here's the Son of Man there to enjoy this event with everybody else. You think about all the negative experiences that Jesus is going to go through in his ministry and all the difficult situations he's going to face. And this one, he just gets to enjoy. He's going there to celebrate. That is so intriguing to me. Because we're used to seeing Jesus in his teaching mode or in his healing mode or in his debating mode with his opponents. This seems like it's just going to be Jesus in relaxed mode. Honoring the bride and groom, enjoying the festivities. It's just so normal. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to experience Jesus at a wedding? But no matter how normal it started, it didn't end that way because there is a, di a dilemma that arises. During the festivities, something happened, and you likely know what that is, but you can see in, in verse 3 that the wine ran out. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal to us. I tend to think like one author who wrote this. He said, as, as emergencies go, this one falls well down the list. It caused embarrassment, to be sure, but but need a Messiah who had come to heal the sick and liberate the captives? Should a Messiah like that concern himself with a social faux pas? But we need to realize this is a bigger issue than we might think it is. No, it wasn't a life or death issue. It wasn't a religious controversy. It wasn't an ethical dilemma. But it very much was a social and cultural issue. David Leip, in his commentary on John for Truth for Today, summarized it this way. He said, To run out of wine on such an occasion would not only be disruptive, but also embarrassing, especially in a shame-based culture. Not only would social disgrace result from a failure to discharge hospitality duties, but evidence suggests that the groom would also be subject to litigation because he was legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. So let's put this in context. In that culture, hospitality was a chief. Um, that's, this is one of those times I lost the word. Y'all are probably getting used to that by now. It was one of those, those uh, expectations, but oh, it's something that's just... Hold on. I usually say this about the concept of freedom in the U.S. Something that's, no, no, something that's held in high esteem. Something that everybody um, ex not only expects, but if you don't do it, it's looked down upon. Man, it would have been great if I had a word. <laughs> so anyway, hospitality is a big deal. So, I mean, think about it in, in Jewish culture. You can think back all the way to the Old Testament with Abraham when visitors showed up at his tent. Hospitality. You can think about um, a parable we dealt with um, a few, several weeks ago. Uh, there's a parable about a guy who's knocking on the door of a house because someone showed up and now he's got to feed him and he ain't got, he ain't got the bread. So hospitality is a big deal in their culture. And a wedding feast. You're inviting the whole town, the whole village, to come out and celebrate. 
And if you run out of the resources and the supplies to entertain your guests, that's not very hospitable. Let's not forget, hospitality is identified as one of the qualifications of an elder. I think it's one of those qualifications that we kind of put lower on the list. We elevate the husband of one wife, uh, ruling the whole household well, um, able to teach, we, we put those really up high, and we focus on those. And then hospitality, well, you know why? Because Americans aren't hospitable. What I mean by that is, now, let's, let me caveat that. Southerners are hospitable. <laughs> the Bostonian does not like my comment. I'm just, but here, here's the thing. Americans, we are getting less and less hospitable. And what I mean by that is we are less and less concerned with having people into our homes. We are more and more private as years go on. The pandemic didn't help, but even before the pandemic, some of you who are older can probably remember the days when, when churches would gather in people's homes. And they would do so uh, multiple nights each month. Maybe every Sunday. Or after every gospel meeting. I mean, we used to have gospel meetings that were a week, ten days, two weeks, a month long. We get less and less hospitable over the years. We get more and more separated, more and more um, uh, di divided, and more and more secretive. But in that culture, hospitality was a big deal. And at a feast like this, you were expected to um, make sure there's plenty of provisions. And it was interesting in, in those comments that David Leip wrote, there is evidence that the bride's family and even visitors could sue the bridegroom for failure to provide an adequate celebration. Now that's kind of American, isn't it? So, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us. I mean, throughout Jesus' ministry, he would perform many miracles. Some of those miracles would provide life-saving remedies to incurable medical ailments. Some of those miracles would rescue people from the crippling bondage of demon possession. Some of those miracles would bring loved ones back from the dead. This miracle, from our vantage point, would simply spare the host some embarrassment. But we weren't part of that culture. We didn't experience the shame that came with a failure to, to be hospitable like they would. So we need to have a little bit more appreciation for it, even though in the grand scheme of things, it still kind of falls pretty far when you compare it to raising Jairus' daughter or, or, or bringing Lazarus back to life or healing the leper colony and things like that. It may still seem a little less significant, but... The fact that Jesus goes through with it should tell us that it was of some significance to him. Now let's turn our attention to the conversation that plays out here. So Jesus' mom comes up to him. I love this part of the story. I think there's so much that can be said about parent-child relationships right here. Uh, we're not going to dive into all that tonight, but, but notice this. Jesus' mom comes up to Jesus, and, and all she says, this is so mom-like, all she says is they have no wine. That's all she says. Does she actually make a request of Jesus? Does she actually ask him to do something? Does she actually put any uh, parameters or anything on this? She just states the issue. That's all she does. It's such a mom thing to do. It's, 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 you've got to read between the lines and understand what I'm telling you to do right now, and you better do it right. But then Jesus responds. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. Did Jesus ever agree to help? In the context of what we have to read, did Jesus actually agree to help? No. Jesus never said, okay, I'll, I'll take care of it. He never said that. Jesus says, has this statement that, that we feel so offended by. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
Here's the thing. If any of us called our mother woman, our time would have come. But we do need to understand there's cultural dynamics here as well. This is not as offensive in that time and place as it is today. We, we are uncomfortable with his use of woman, but I want you to notice something. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, when he's at the end of his life, and he as the eldest child of a widowed woman needs to provide for her long-term care, he speaks to John, and he speaks to his mother. And what does he say to her? Woman, behold your son. You see, you got to put the two together. One is, feels like a very um, self-absorbed, um, demeaning situation here in John chapter 2. But the other one doesn't feel that way. When you get over to, to, to where Jesus says that later in the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, I believe, it's not derogatory. It's not demeaning. It's actually a very tender moment. So we need to balance those two uses of this term out to see that this isn't about a demeaning phraseology here. It was a culturally acceptable way to refer to um, his mother in this instance. And it is very interesting that he doesn't refer to her as, as his mother. And, and what, what else is interesting is in John's gospel, it's my understanding that she's never really called Mary. She's always called the mother of Jesus. And that's fascinating in and of itself. But the use of woman here is just a culturally um, acceptable way of speaking. And really, this, is, this whole response of Jesus is about the phrase, my hour has not yet come. It's important to note that this is the first of nine references to Jesus' hour or Jesus' time in John's gospel. Those references are here in chapter 2 and verse 4, in chapter 7, verse 30, in chapter 8, verse 20, in chapter 12, verse 23 and 27, in chapter 13 and verse 1, in chapter 16, verse 2, and chapter 17, verse 1. All right, you got all those down? Here's the interesting thing about those references. There are nine of them. The first three take place prior to Jesus' triumphal entry. Now, Jesus' triumphal entry happens basically uh, happens at the start of his last week of life. And Jesus, up until that point, anytime he, this phrase is used, it's, my hour has not yet come. But after his triumphal entry, it changes. And it's, my hour or my time has come. Jesus had a very strong understanding of his time. And as one author pointed out, the, the hour toward which everything moves is the hour of Jesus' glorification, which takes place through his death, resurrection, and exaltation. And so ultimately, when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, he's communicating a couple of things. He's communicating that he's operating on God's agenda and God's timetable now. And so if it's, if it's not in, in, in God's timetable, his hour has not yet come. But he's also communicating that he didn't think it was time for him to get involved in a situation that could complicate his greater mission. You have to think about it. If he's going to do something here miraculous, which he does, he understands that that's going to bring attention to him in a way he has yet to experience. If Jesus acted, this is a commentator speaking, that would mean his time had come. And from that moment on, life would change. If word of his powers leaked, he would soon hear pleas from needy people from Tyre to Jerusalem. Crowds would flock, epileptics, paralytics, deaf mutes, the demon-possessed, not to mention any street beggar who wanted a free glass of wine. Investigators would be dispatched from the capital. A clock would start ticking that would not stop until Calvary. So Jesus understood that once he opened that miraculous ability for the public to see, 
He can't undo anything. Everything marches toward the end. I think that's what Jesus is communicating here with the, my hour has not yet come, to some degree. But that does present us with an interesting question. Did Mary know Jesus could do miracles? Because John's going to tell us in verse 11 that this is the first of Jesus' signs. So if Mary knows that Jesus can do miracles, how? Because apparently he's never done one before, right? Anybody want to weigh in on that? Because to be honest, I don't have an answer for that one. Or I don't have a good answer for that one. Maybe Mary doesn't know he can do miracles. Maybe she just looks at him and sees a problem solver. You notice Joseph is not mentioned anywhere in this story. Here, Jesus and Mary and Jesus' disciples are at a wedding, which seems to indicate that it's either that it's somebody they, they collectively know, at least Jesus and Mary collectively know. Could be a family member, could be a close friend. And the fact that Mary comes to Jesus with the dilemma related to the wine seems to imply that she may have had some responsibility at the wedding. Maybe she was helping in the catering category for the bridegroom. Maybe there's some uh, awareness, uh, some, uh, some family connection going on there. We don't know. That's speculation. But remember, Cana is nine miles from Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus and Mary and Joseph. That's not very far. They could have relatives up there in Cana. So that, that possibility at least exists. And, it, and the possibility then exists that Mary has a role to play in the provision of these, the, the food and beverage at this event. But remember, Joseph's not mentioned. In fact, the last time Joseph technically is mentioned in a story in the life of Jesus, as far as an active participant, is in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was 12 years old. It's the suspicion of most scholars that by this time, really by the time of Jesus' baptism, Joseph has passed away. And he's no longer in the picture, making Mary a widow, making Jesus her eldest son, and the one who is responsible for her care. And so it may be that Mary approaches Jesus with this issue because she's got responsibility and whenever she faces a difficult dilemma, whenever she faces some sort of struggle, Jesus is her go-to as her eldest son. That possibility exists. Another possibility exists. Jesus is the Son of God who would one day resolve mankind's greatest need, the need for salvation. And here's his mother asking him to reveal himself to the world by resolving a rather insignificant issue that would at worst embarrass a couple of individuals. And she doesn't even wait for him to agree to help. As soon as Jesus says, Woman, my hour has not yet come, right after that, Mary just turns around and tells the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Maybe she did that because she knows that her son... It's going to help people. Maybe she knows that Jesus cares about people to the point that he's willing to help them with even the smallest of problems. Maybe this isn't a, hey, she knows his miraculous ability. Maybe it's she knows his heart. She's had 30 years to watch it. Brother Iverson.
But like I'm saying, if, if he's not there, I think it would only be because he's not alive anymore. That, that's the only, the only reason I would say he's not there. Mike? Yeah, she, she, she's thinking, oh, he'll just practice. maybe he'll help me get some more wine. Not necessarily he'll make more wine. And, uh, you know, the, so that's a great possibility here. Rich? Did she really leave it up to him? Because she turned around to the servants and said, do what he says. Now, back to that phrase you were talking about, the what is it to you and me? The, the Greek actually is that there's an idiom going on there that could be him saying, what is it to me? It's your problem, not mine. So the, the Greek can go two ways there, which is very interesting. I just, yeah. But she very well, I mean, maybe she didn't know something. Who knows? That's, what, that's the fun part of that about this. I, I think it can go either way. That's what I mean by this is a very mom statement. This is, a, I'm telling you what's going on, and you better figure it out. <laughs> James. Maybe so. I, I'd go with a chronology that puts this before the, the Sea of Galilee incident, but that's 
still a great uh, a possibility. The, that particular miracle could have preceded this. Um, then, then it do, but it does make you wonder what is uh, John referring to as the first of his signs. He, John would have to be very spe- specifically referring to public signs, which is a fair point. All right, let, what was it? That's a, his birth is a miracle. That is very true. That is very true. Let's talk about the miracle real quick. We don't have much time left, but uh, if in verse 6, you'll see there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Uh, about those water jars, is, most of our modern English translations let us know that the amount the, those jars could hold was 20 to 30 gallons, which would make it, the, the whole contents, be somewhere 100 to 150 gallons worth of, uh, of water in those containers. Um, what's interesting about them is that they were stone and not uh, made out of earth, made out of clay, um, because the, a stone water jar uh, could not contract uncleanness at, like the Old Testament idea of uncleanness. And that's why they were the ones used for ceremonial washing. And in the context of this wedding feast, uh, they may have had those jars there, and they may have had water in them for washing utensils that were used in the meal or having the guests wash their hands before they ate. But we know that Jesus, or excuse me, we know that this ceremonial washing comes up in Jesus' teaching at times. Where, where he'll criticize the Pharisees for washing the outside, but not the inside, and so on. And so that it's very interesting that here at the start of Jesus' ministry, we have something that is, that, has been, that is part of the Old Testament law, part, something that is, is part of a tr- the Jewish customs and traditions that Jesus is uh, facing off with to some degree. Uh, in that he's dealing, he's utilizing these instruments that are part of Mosaic law, and by the end of this whole episode, they're going to have a different purpose now. And think about the 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 fact that um, in like the Sermon on the Mount, or I don't know, it may not have been the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus himself will say at some point, "I've not come to abolish the law; I've come to fulfill it." And it's interesting how how Jesus kind of uh, in that Sermon on the Mount, reinterprets the law. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you this. Here, he's taking something that is utilized in that law and utilizing it in a new purpose, in a new way. Now, let's talk about wine for a moment. I'm glad the, bell, the first bell is already rung as we enter this subject. The text says in verse 9 that the water became wine, and the term used for wine in this passage is the most common Greek word for wine. It's the term used in the Septuagint, which is the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the term used in the Septuagint and in the New Testament to refer both to new wine from freshly squeezed grapes and to wine that has fermented and become a strong drink. Um, Quoting from one commentator, in the Greco-Roman world, there were three kinds of wine. There were fermented wines, which usually were mixed in the with two or three parts of water to one wine. There was new wine made up of grape juice and similar to cider that was not fermented. And there was a third type of wine, a wine that was made by boiling unfermented grape juice, and the process of fermentation had been stopped and the formation of alcohol prevented. So you had these different types of wine. Our idea is we've got one type of wine because we have another word for something that is not alcoholic juice. In their day, they didn't have different words. They had one word, and it comprised both. So the point is that the term translated wine can be used in reference to both an alcoholic beverage and something comparable to grape juice. So the terminology used in this passage does not aid in our deduction of whether or not Jesus created an alcoholic beverage. You cannot argue that because it uses the word wine that it had to have alcohol in it. It's also worth noting that the master of the feast in verse 10 
referred to Jesus' wine as good wine. He said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. That expression, good wine, may seem to suggest that it was high in alcoholic content. However, it's a mistake to assume that what was considered good at that time is identical to what is considered good today. Our culture would say good wine is the most alcoholic wine. But that may not be what they were claiming here. In fact, evidence from contemporaries of uh, Jesus, contemporary secular writers, indicates that the best wines were those whose alcohol potency had been removed by boiling or filtration. So you got a guy named Pliny the Elder who said, Wines are most beneficial when all their potency has been removed by the strainer. Plutarch said, Purging wine takes from it all the strength that inflames and engages the mind and gives it instead thereof a mild and wholesome temper. You have these authors who contend that wine is best when it lacks alcohol. So we should not conclude that Jesus' wine was identified as good wine because of its alcoholic content. Instead, the identification of Jesus' wine as the good wine may simply be a reference to the fact that it was qualitatively superior to what had been served earlier. I want to make those two points because a lot of people like to take this passage and use it as a basis for their alcohol consumption. And we have to concede that we don't know the exact nature of what Jesus made at that wedding. That's always going to be controversial. But there is no reason to conclude that the wine produced by Jesus was the kind associated with the drunkenness that is clearly condemned in the Scriptures. To argue that Jesus made some substance not approved by the Scriptures is to say that he did something that was inconsistent with his character. So my whole point is to show you that the word wine and the fact that Jesus' wine was good wine is not an indicator that it was alcoholic. We have a, a false view of that text when we attribute it to alcohol. So I throw that out there here in these last minutes because everybody wants to talk about alcohol when you talk about the conversion of the water to wine. We've got a couple minutes left before we wrap up. I'll give it one last minute for comments, questions, observations, debates, arguments, ridicules, anything else. All right, let's go to God in prayer as we wrap up our study tonight. Lord God in heaven, thank you for the example of your son. Thank you for giving us that model. Thank you for his willingness to come to this earth and take the form of us and experience like us. May we ever appreciate his life more and more as we study it. And Lord, may we ever seek to emulate it more and more as we study it. We thank you for his sacrifice. And we know that it's because of that sacrifice that we can have eternity with you in heaven. We love you, Lord. And it's through the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.